to the Public Safety Innovators Podcast. Connecting you with experts and trendsetters who are leading innovation in law enforcement, private security, and personal protection. And now, your host, Adam Wills. Hey everybody, thanks for checking out this episode of the Public Safety Innovators Podcast. This is episode six, and today we have an awesome, awesome show. I am going to be speaking with Scott Savage of the Savage Training Group. Now many of you probably already have heard of Scott Savage and his team over at Savage Training Group. They've become rather iconic lately in the training space. They have very highly sought after training both in person and online. Now, maybe you also tuned in for the recent ILET Summit back in August in which Scott Savage was one of the guest panelists. Today, we are going to talk about the cancer that is affecting law enforcement. And you might be asking yourself, what is that? Well, in our opinion that we're going to express on the show today, that cancer is the that's the way we've always done it mentality. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today and why that is such a dangerous thought process to have in the law enforcement industry. And we're also going to touch on some current topics and subjects affecting law enforcement around the country. And we're both going to get a little bit fired up about it. I'm really excited for you to hear my interview with Scott. This has been one of my favorite interviews that I've done so far, and I think you're going to absolutely love it. So let's go ahead and dive into my interview with Scott Savage of Savage Training Group. Scott, welcome to the Public Safety Innovators Podcast. Adam, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's awesome to have you on the show followed you for a while, followed your your podcast and some of your your informational content that you put out there. And I think that you are certainly an innovator in public safety. And I, I really was excited to have you on the show today. So thanks for coming on. My pleasure. I think we've, we've connected over um, that saying, well, gee, that's the way we've always done it. And our, our mutual disdain for that saying, right? Yeah. You responded to my request to have you on the show and filled out my guest questionnaire and made a comment in response to that about thanking me essentially for having a podcast based upon the concept of innovation and standing against the that's the way we've always done it mentality. And uh, as soon as I saw that from you (laughs) in your response, I immediately thought to myself, oh, this is my guy. Now I'm really now I'm even more excited to have you on the show. Everybody that knows me in law enforcement, uh, especially folks that used to work for me when I was under sheriff, uh, know that that is that is definitely a trigger phrase for me uh, when they say, well, that's the way we've always done it. I certainly think that that's a, a problematic mindset to have in our industry. Well, it's it's pervasive and I, you know, I'm sure it's pervasive in a, in a lot of industries, but in law enforcement, ours is a, a profession that is inundated with tradition right? Yeah. We're very traditional in how we do things. Our uniform is traditional. Our our practices are traditional. The way our badges look is traditional. And all that 
you know, maybe a good thing, but a lot of that carries over into operations and tactics and just the way we do things. And we hear that phrase among police officers all the time. Well, gee, that's, that's the way we've, we've always done it. And it usually, that is the answer to the question, why did you do that? <laughs> and right. in law enforcement, why we do things more than ever before has become a, a matter of intense scrutiny, you know, in the, in the media, amongst the public. And for good reason, we should constantly be asking, why did we do that? Why did we do that? Why are we doing this? So if the answer is, gee, that's the way we've always done it, then the next logical question would be, is that a good thing? You know, are we doing Absolutely. this based on a scientific study? Are we doing this based on a, if not that, a best practice? Are we doing that because it's working for us and it's very successful and we should keep doing that? But if the answer is, well, it's, it's not necessarily successful, it's not really based on any best practice or scientific study, I, I guess then naturally we should be saying, maybe we should do something different and innovate a little bit, but... Ours is a profession that gets kind of stuck sometimes in doing things the way we've always done it. So it's great to see someone like you dedicating a podcast and creating media and having interviews about people that want to innovate and do something maybe, maybe a little different. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think tradition is an important piece of what we do in law enforcement. I mean, there's, there's a long history and tradition around that industry. And I think it's something that we have to hold fast to. It's, it's important for us to keep our traditions close, but you're right. When, when that starts to bleed into the way we operate, and if our answer is nothing more when asked why we're doing something a certain way, well, that's the way we've always done it. Well, that's a problem. I mean, uh, what I always used to tell my guys when I would ask them that question, why, why did we do it this way? And that was never meant to be an accusatory thing or, or there was never a reason to read into that beyond the simple nature of the question. It's truly just an inquisitive, hey, explain to me, why, why did you do this this way? I'm interested in learning your thought process behind it. And when I would get that response of, well, that's the way we've always done it. My next question is, do you think that's an appropriate response when you're on the stand? You know, I mean, if, if you're asked that question by a, a defense attorney, are you going to say that's the way we've always done it? <laughs> I mean, that's not going to get you very far, is it? No, you're absolutely right. It's not defensible. Simp simply absent any other better reason, that's not a defensible answer. And why is that important? Why should your listeners care? Well, you know, why should... Should the folks that are in your audience be concerned with that? Well, I think it's because we have a problem. You know, we in the United States uh, have an issue and that we as police officers have a problem. And that problem is there is a uh, disparity between what sort of the public and the media and the folks that we serve expect of us and what we as police officers expect of them. There's this kind of divide going on, right? And, and one only need to open yeah. the news or look on YouTube or, or, or talk to sort of anyone and be like, and I think you'll find that how the police think they should operate. And I, I'm one of them. I've been a policeman for 21 years and I'm a police trainer. I'm, I'm immersed in it. How we sort of think the world should operate and, and we should operate might not be quite the same as the average citizen thinks which is probably vastly different than a sort of staunch police critic 
thinks we should operate. And that's the issue. And while it's okay to disagree about expectations and what we, what we want of each other, the reason it's such a huge problem is that ours is a deadly serious profession. Ours is the only profession that we walk around all day long with a gun on our hip and we can make independent decisions about who to shoot and a byproduct of that is often kill, right? No one else Absolutely. makes that decision. A, a soldier operating in, in a war zone is not making those types of independent decisions about who to shoot, who not to shoot. A security guard who may be armed is not making those types of decisions. The police have one of the most challenging or complex professions there is. And so one would think, if nothing else, we need to be crystal clear as a society about what we expect police officers to do. And police officers need to be equally clear on what the, what, what is the world expecting me to do? Sort of what's my role? What's my mission? How would you like me to handle X, Y, and Z? And that's the issue we have, right? And to your point, that's the way we've always done it. Oftentimes the police will take some affirmative action, perhaps be involved in a controversial use of force. And someone will ask them, be it an investigator or a defense counsel or the media is asking, well, gee, why did the police do that? And oftentimes it is, well, that's, that's how I was trained, which that's Absolutely. how I was trained. Maybe a version of that's how we've always done it. And the next logical question is, is that training adequate? Should we change it? Is how we're training police officers today in the police academy, is that working for us? One can look in the streets and see the rioting going on and the, the huge backlash against police officers right now and probably rightfully answer, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think that everything we're doing is working for us. So maybe we need to innovate. Absolutely. And I, I think you, you said it well, you know, there's this dichotomy and, and almost, I would say a chasm between what the public thinks we should be doing and how we should be doing it and, and what their perspective is about the environment in which we operate versus the other side of that being those of us that are steeped in it, as you said, uh, are immersed in it. The, the viewpoint that we have about how we ought to be doing things and in what environment we operate. And so there's this, there's this huge barrier between those things. And as the saying goes, the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? So we've got to figure out a way to identify, well, where is that middle point? Because the community is not entirely 100% wrong about desiring some level of change within how law enforcement operates. But, you know, they're, they're also not 100% accurate either about their understanding of what we do, why we do it, and how we do it. And vice versa. So it's certainly a challenge. And I agree, it's it's a challenge that has to be met by innovation, by open mindedness, by a willingness to to grow and and adjust and change and still hold fast to our traditions, like I said, but we have to be willing to to look at ways to continue doing what we do effectively and doing it in a way that we feel like is appropriate while also meeting the needs of the community and, and their requests. Now, with that said, I am willing to be a little bit controversial here and stand some ground that uh, maybe won't win me a whole lot of fans, or maybe it will. But 
a lot of what we're seeing going on right now in the country is pretty irrational. It's highly politicized and really unrealistic in a lot of ways. Some of the demands that I think people are making of law enforcement and some of the lenses that these high profile cases that are in the news right now are being viewed. And I get it. I know I'm biased. I've I spent 15 years in law enforcement myself, obviously uh, having that insider knowledge and being immersed in it, as you said, affects my perspective on it. I can never again look at how law enforcement operates the way that a civilian does. Even though I am no longer in law enforcement and I am a civilian now, I, I can't look at it the same way that they do. And so I personally feel like it is, it's very unrealistic. And I feel like a lot of these cases that are out there right now, and we, I mean, there, there's, there's a number of them, unfortunately. I will say that I have not seen a single case that is being protested right now that I believe is, in fact, a product of systemic racism in our nation's law enforcement. That is my personal opinion. Well, good thing is that we're going to solve all the world's problems in this next hour. So everyone that's listening, just wait for the end because we will solve all these issues, right? Adam and I will. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Well, there's nothing wrong with us having sort of controversial or pointed conversations about this. And when people ask me, do you think that there's, you know, race, do you think there's police officers that are racist? I said, well, my typical answer is something along the lines of, well, the last time I checked, there definitely are racist humans and we hire police officers from humans, right? They're just regular people. right? Um, And so if if it is true that there are racist people in the world and we hire from the, the world's populace, then absolutely there's probably racist officers. Now, do I believe that there is widespread officers who are acting upon some racist belief and trying to carry out, you know, using force on people of color, for instance, because of some racist belief. No, I, I don't believe that. Agreed. Do I believe that training police officers against implicit bias, you know, and having them attend sort of a 40 hour class, uh, teaching them about implicit bias, is that helpful in creating behavior change? Well, I don't know that it is because that's never been scientifically proven. As a matter of fact, there are studies saying that having police officers attending implicit bias training does nothing to change behavior, right? Because that's the point of training. We can send people to a class that sounds intuitively correct. In other words, that sounds like a good idea to send a police officer to an implicit bias course. However, are we spending that money wisely because we're trying to create a behavior change, not simply send someone to a class? I would say the same would be true with something like de-escalation, which the D word, de-escalation, is huge <laughs> in the law enforcement training world right now and yeah. huge amongst police critics who are calling for the police to, quote, de-escalate people. And that word is such an interesting word because it means so many different things to so many different people. Here in California, our sort of regulating body for uh, police agencies is called POST, Peace Officer Standards and Training. They just released a new document called, uh, you know, something along the lines of de-escalation strategies and techniques. It's 134 pages long. Wow. And it has a a main definition, but describes de-escalation in a variety of ways. It's a concept. It's a philosophy. It's kind of like a noun. It's sort of like a verb. It can mean a lot of different things to different people. So 
if we want the police to behave in a certain way, naturally, we've got to be clear on what that is. We would have to tell them what good looks like. What, what does, for instance, de-escalation look like when I do it right? To tell me what that is in your mind, whoever's telling the police they need to de-escalate. Oftentimes, they will say something like, it's, it's sort of like talking people into being cooperative. It's talking people into compliance. And so my question there is because remember, oftentimes things aren't, aren't quite as simple as they seem. If it was simply as, as easy as Adam and Scott should talk people into compliance, well, don't you think that officers would do that? I know I would. If I right. could, if I had the uh, sort of magical power to quote deescalate someone, which means convince them to do something they don't want to do. If I possess the superhuman power to talk everyone into handcuffs, talk everyone into compliance, I'd do it. I, I would. Yeah. I I'd do it a hundred percent. But the issue becomes: is it that simple? Is it that simple to just quote deescalate someone? We'll give you an example. Oftentimes, the police will be called to deal with the mentally ill, severely mentally ill people or people who are under the influence of drugs or both at the same time. They're under the influence of drugs, they're mentally ill, and they're in some sort of crisis. Perhaps they're a man walking through the park armed with a baseball bat, and he, he appears to be in some sort of crisis, and the police respond to that, right? That is happening every day in every jurisdiction around the country. What? do you expect the police officers to do in that situation, right? You want them to somehow take care of that person to save him from harming himself. And you want to, the police to take care of everyone else to keep that man from harming other people. So far, we're on board, right? Every police officer is like, totally, that's 100%. what I signed up. I, I, I want to, you know, kind of keep everyone safe. Now the question is, how do you want them to do that? That's where the rubber meets the road. Well, I, you guys should deescalate them. Aha. How would you envision we do that? Now, this person is perhaps their mind is polluted with, with chemicals, drugs, alcohol. They're suffering from a diminished capacity to cooperate because of the neurological or psychological issues they're having. And you want me to sort of talk to this person. Okay, well, to talk to him, I've got to get kind of close to him. Or at least got to get maybe a PA speaker so I can, he can hear me. We've got to have some way to communicate with the guy. Is that enough? It, if I brought in the best negotiator in the world and this guy is high and he's, he's mentally ill and he's in crisis, will this best negotiator in the world be able to do it? I don't know. I don't know. Well, what if he starts coming towards us in an aggressive manner? How should we act then? Well, you guys should use a, a net or some sort of, well, we don't have a net. Well, you guys should <laughs> use a, uh, some sort of less lethal, like a, a rubber projectile. Okay. Do you know that a lot of agencies don't have access to those types of weapon systems and some that do only have one or two of those systems? They don't have it on every officer. Well, every officer should have one then is what the critics would say. Okay. Yeah. Where does the money come from? You want to train <laughs> every officer to be an expert negotiator, to fire sophisticated, less lethal launchers. I'm, and, and we should also train them in how to set up this call and tactics and whatnot. Hey, listen. I run a, a training company, so I want nothing yeah. more than to, you to come. I'm, I'm game for that. I yeah, like the idea, but it's it's not realistic. It's going to cost a lot of money. It is naturally, if we want the police to. We certainly aren't going to get there by defunding, are we? Well, no, we would have to fund more. 
And if you say, well, I just want to abolish the police because I just don't like them and I just want to start over. Okay, let's do that. Now let's stand up and then a new entity that responds to these types of things and we'll have to recruit, hire and retain those individuals. And of course you want to train those individuals how to act, right? No, no problem. Let's invest untold numbers of dollars into training these people to act. But here's the thing that, that a lot of folks don't understand. You can have the most highly trained psychologists, clinicians, doctors, and nurses, but to operate in the austere environment that police officers operate outside in the cold, in the rain, right? With drunk family members interfering with civilians running amok through the park, putting a phone in the officer's face saying, I'm going to sue you. I got this on tape with not operating in a clinical environment like clinicians are used to inside a nice office in the air conditioning with a file that explains who this mentally ill patient is. Remember, we don't have access to any of that stuff. We ask police officers to make very split second decisions in terrible, austere environments, in circumstances that are tense and uncertain and rapidly evolving. You can put any human you like, you can call them the police or the new police or clinicians, whoever you like. When you ask humans to perform at that peak, peak level that we want and I want police officers to operate in, it requires incredible amounts of training. And if your listeners saw sort of what the conventional police trainings are, I don't think they would be impressed, right? Police academies need to evolve. Uh, In-service police training needs to evolve. And I don't know that we need more training, but we certainly need better training. We need to innovate with We always better, need to advance high quality, quality training. training. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, here's the challenge I have with de-escalation training. And, and I'll preface this by saying first that I, I wholeheartedly believe in de-escalation training. I think that every officer should have de-escalation training and continue it. It shouldn't just be a one-time thing, right? There is no one-time magic pill that you can take that all of a sudden now I have the ability to de-escalate situations. It takes practice, it takes experience, and it takes application. The problem I have is that there, there is this misnomer, this unrealistic idea that I think we all have, and, and especially the community has, that this term de-escalation means, and that through de-escalation training, I am now equipped with some sort of magic weapon, whether that's a verbal or a, an actual physical device. I am now equipped in a way that I have the magical ability to control a subject's response. We don't have that level of control. We are human beings. You cannot control a human being to that extent, right? And so regardless of how well-trained I am in de-escalation, and how successful I am more times than not in de-escalating a situation. There are always going to be encounters where, like you said, somebody is high on uh, a narcotic or mentally ill or a combination of those two things and something else. There's always going to be a situation where there is somebody where it does not matter what you do. They are not going to de-escalate. And that that's a challenge, right? And there has to be a response to that. And unfortunately, sometimes tragedies occur in response to that. I mean, we were talking before the show a little bit about uh, uh, Daniel Prude in that case in Rochester, New York. And I told you that that, that is kind of close to home for me, literally, because that is where I grew up. 
that's my hometown. That's where I started my law enforcement career. And, you know, I think from what I see, and now granted, I'm, I'm armchair quarterbacking this. None of us can have all the facts, right? Unless we were actually there. You know, we can get about as close as possible by doing our research. But um, in, in researching that myself and looking through it, there was a lot of challenges that those guys faced in that incident. And Daniel Prude was very compliant right off the bat. You know, then he started escalating. He was high on PCP. He started escalating. And now I'll admit, I wish having watched that video and, and seen the candor of some of the officers on camera and the things that they said or the way they said them, I wish they would have done some things a little bit different as far as their level of professionalism was concerned. However, the way that they actually reacted and handled that situation, I think they they did what they were trained to do and what they knew best to do. And I've worn one of those spit hoods before in training. And, you know, people are making it out like there was a plastic bag over his head. Uh, <laughs> and it, th- that's just not how those work. You know, I mean, uh, y- you can you can breathe just fine through a spit hood. And I think there was other challenges there that allowed that situation to magnify to what it was that were beyond anybody's control. Uh, I think they were beyond law enforcement's control. And and admittedly, I think they were beyond Daniel Prude's control because he was high on narcotics. And it's a tragedy. It's an absolute tragedy. That should never happen. But it's just part of, unfortunately, our human nature that uh, there are, are things out there that, that result you know, that, that cause those types of results. Drugs have a uh, pretty significant impact on people. And so anyway, I, I struggle with, with that, with the de-escalation. I think that there's a um, unrealistic expectation that if you're trained in de-escalation tactics, that somehow you're going to 100% of the time, you've got this magic weapon that's going to fix the problem. And, and that's just not, it's just not true. No, you're absolutely right. And I think one thing we as a society can do as we're moving forward and we're trying to maybe reimagine like the police and their role in society. This is coming from a police officer. I, I'm telling you, I, I like that the idea that we can innovate and do things differently than we've been doing it. But here's the rub. When did we as a society decide together that the police are the people we're going to send to folks in drug-induced crisis. When did we as a society all agree that the police were the best people to send to homeless issues? When did we agree that the police should be the responders to folks that are mentally ill and in crisis? Because there are other entities, other arms of government, say the fire department, public works, you name it. Who picked the police and who decided that the police were best suited for this? Because that's yeah, an excellent point. Well, before I was a policeman, I was a paramedic. I worked, I was a paramedic here in San Jose, California. And we dealt with folks that, you know, were high on drugs and we had a bed and a gurney and restraints and we operated with the fire department. So we had access to other guys that could help hold the dude down and get him under the gurney safely. And we could administer drugs and we could treat him. But I'll tell you, We never went anywhere into those scenes until the police made it safe. And a little known fact that I don't think your your sort of average non-police officer realizes is that when you create other entities to go deal with problems, uh, such as you want a clinician to go deal with the mentally ill, you want um, some entity to come out and deal with the homeless, 
those folks are not going into those scenes until the police make it safe because they don't want to be harmed. This is something that happens every day across America. Yeah. Someone will call 911 and they'll, they'll want assistance and they'll, whatever incident is happening involves, let's say, drugs, alcohol, or violence. And let's say there's been an injury. So the, the fire department or the paramedics are responding. Did you know that the fire department and the paramedics are going to park down the street in something they call staging? Until the police respond and make the scene safe, get on the radio and say it's secure, you can bring in the fire department, you can bring in the paramedics. That is a very typical response in the U.S. So, again, we can have lots of entities that are going to go deal with these problems, but don't call the police and say you want them to go in and make it safe first because you're going to be in the exact same situation we're in now. And as a police officer, we never raised our hand and said, yeah, we want to handle the mentally ill. We want to handle folks on drugs. We want to handle the homeless issues. And if you ask the average police officer, hey, would you mind if you guys didn't go to those calls anymore and we had a, a new entity go to them? I think we'd all be like, totally. That sounds great because you know why? This is not what I'm signed up for. And this is probably outside my area of expertise. We give cops a few hours of training in drugs and a few hours of training in homeless issues and a few hours of training in dealing with the mentally ill or and then we kind of expanded that into for the mentally ill folks and said, here's something called crisis intervention training, which is a 40-hour class you can go to. And you can learn about the signs and the symptoms of different you know, uh, mental illnesses. And you can learn about the medications they take and maybe a few techniques here and there, such as talk with one voice, give the person time to process, you know, make them feel safe. And that's all good and well. But to the person who's in a full-blown crisis and, God forbid, has armed themselves with something, that's not helpful. So let's talk about what our expectations are of the police. Because when people say, gosh, I pay your salary, you know, I, I pay my taxes, so I pay your salary. My comeback is, you are absolutely correct. What would you like me to do? In a sense, you're my boss. And if you tell me, if you can come up with what my role in society should be, and it's lawful, it's ethical, it's moral, I am happy to do it. If you say, Scott, you are no longer responding to the mentally ill folks, no problem. I, I'm, I'm happy to go do something else, but let's just be clear. But then if you're going to say, no, you should go deal with that. And we do give you the training. Okay, then please have a realistic expectation. Please don't have false expectations because as a human being police officer, I am bound by the limitations of human performance, right? Uh, if you're asking mm -hmm. me, you're going to put me in challenging, austere environments and ask me to make split-second decisions, sometimes I'm going to get those wrong. Sometimes they will end. Sometimes I will make the right decision, such as shooting the right person, and it's not going to look good. And it's going to look horrible. And people are going to get injured and, God forbid, killed. And uh, I'll give you an example that I think is makes sense to a lot of people that thankfully uh, does show that our, our profession can evolve. Years ago, when I first started being a police officer, we would get a call of a, a suicidal person who is, he's armed, let's say with a gun and he's inside his house and maybe the family ran out and they're like, my family member wants to commit suicide. He's in the house. He's, he's got a gun. And everyone else runs out of the house. Now, typically we would surround the house and we would loud hail with a PA speaker or get him on the phone and be, and try to negotiate him out. Hey man, you're not in any trouble, but we're going to put you on a mental health hold. So come on out. We would try for a reasonable amount of time to get the guy out. 
And if he didn't come out, let's say he he's in his house and he's a, a barricaded, you know, armed suicidal subject. I'm sure you remember this, Adam. What, what did we used to do, right? We would kick in that guy's door to yeah, go help. Absolutely. Him. But because he had yep. a gun, yep. you would have your gun out and I would have my gun out and we'd we'd be pointing our guns at him going, We're here to help you. Like you're not gonna yeah. kill yourself. I might kill you, but you yeah. can't kill you. We're here to help. It, and it sounds <laughs> asinine. You know, when thinking yeah. back, this sounds ludicrous. But that's yeah. exactly what we would do. We would force our care on that guy. And slowly, after enough times of getting into shootings, our profession getting into shootings with those mentally ill people, of enough times of police officers being injured by that mentally ill, armed, suicidal person who's clearly in crisis, we as a profession said, you know what, I I think we're going to stop forcing entry on those types of things, and we're going to what we call disengage. And most modern police agencies have bought into this new philosophy, but there are some still that don't like at the, the company I own is called Savage training group. We have a course called response to the non-criminal barricade. It is a training course that teaches about tactics and liability laws and the best ways to handle that, that situation I just described. And in it, we talk about things like, you know, you're not going to be liable as a police officer for disengaging. There are some nuances to that and some little things that you might could create liability. But if you follow kind of a best practice on how to disengage and that, and you sort of just leave that guy there, that's probably not going to cause any liability. Where we start becoming liable is when we commit things, not when we omit them, right? When we walk away, it's when we say, no, I'm going to force care on this guy. I'm going to kick in this guy's door and make him accept my care. So I think being able to disengage from those non-criminal barricades proves that our profession can evolve, but it evolves slowly because there's such a disparity between levels of training of the professionalism with different departments. There's someone told me the other day, how many police departments there are in the U S it is incredible. There's just, yeah, there's a lot thousands and thousands and thousands, right? And the, and the majority of them are all small agencies. Yeah. They're like 10 cops or something like that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Average. I think that's the average is, is 10. Yeah, we, we, you know, we can evolve all that. It's just, I think we got to be clear on what, what do we expect police officers to do? And then let's design training that will train them to do that. And then please, as our constituents of the people, as the people we serve, the public should have realistic expectations. When Adam and I show up to your door, just have a realistic expectation. Have you put us in a position to be successful? And then ask, did we live up to that or not? Hey, just me here cutting in for a quick break. Have you subscribed to the podcast yet? If not, you need to. I'm going to be dropping some more episodes here over the coming weeks, and I don't want you to miss a single one. I've got some awesome guests lined up that I'm sure you're going to want to hear from. So please go to wherever it is that you prefer to listen to podcasts and subscribe to the show. Right now, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast. Castro, iHeartRadio, Breaker, Pocket Casts, Podchaser, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, and Amazon. Now, if there's a place that you prefer to listen to podcasts that wasn't on that list, would you please email me at adam at psi.chat and let me know what that is. I'd be happy to submit the show to that directory. 
All right, let's go ahead and jump back into the show. So Scott, up to this point, we've talked about a lot of things and and I think uh, here's kind of the three things that I feel like we've wholeheartedly agreed on so far. One, this attitude of that's the way we've always done it is a cancer in our industry that is uh, stifling growth and progress and really limiting our ability to respond to uh, the desires of our community. And two, that there's some tragic incidents that have occurred around our country. Now, we've shared our personal opinions about them. However, we've both agree that those incidents are tragic and we don't want them to happen. We want to figure out ways that are innovative, that we can respond to incidents in a better way that minimizes impact on life. And regardless of race, this isn't a race thing. This is a human thing. We want to make sure that as law enforcement officers, because I've never met a law enforcement officer that got up every day and went out and said, you know what, I'm going to find somebody to kill today. I've never, ever come across that in my career. We all want to help people. We want to save people regardless of their, their creed, color, and background. And so we agree. We don't want those tragedies to occur. We want to come up with innovative solutions and ways to, to mitigate those things from occurring. The third thing I think we've uh, agreed to here is that the best approach to those things is through training, innovating training, creating new concepts around training, and constantly evolving our training to be able to respond to current environments. So, With that said, you know, we've talked a lot about other things here for the first half of the show. What I'd like to do now, and you started to do this right before the break, you talked a bit about your company, Savage Training Group, and how you guys are sort of leading that innovation and training and responding to those those needs in our nation's law enforcement agencies. And so I'd love to really start to unpack that for the rest of the show here and talk about what you guys are doing, what you're offering, how you're offering and how you are helping to overcome those problems that we just touched on. Yeah. So listen, there, I think there's, there is a problem in law enforcement and one problem that is near and dear to my heart is a lack of high quality training. There's a lot of great companies out there doing a lot of great work and some incredible departments that are presenting fabulous training. But by and large, there's a lot that aren't. And a lot of police officers are having to go to sort of online training courses where they just, we've all been to that fast forwarding through, oh God, some guy droning on, or then they go to their little in-service training and it's- Oh, police one training always drove me nuts. (laughs) Yeah. Or there's an instructor like clicking through a PowerPoint who's going, okay, guys, I know nobody wants to be here, but let me click through my slide PowerPoint, you know. Um, It's boring. It doesn't work. And here's the thing. Does any of that actually ensure learning has occurred or is it just training for training's sake? A lot of the training that police go to is compliance, is certification yes. training. You have to go shoot your gun this many times a year to prove that you're compliant or certified or whatever. That is all important and good and well. That has nothing to do with teaching and learning and training. That's not going to help me improve. That's just helping me maintain something. So police officers, in my opinion, have the most complex job that exists. It is absolutely incredibly difficult to do correct. 
right? So the reason I designed or created the Savage Training Group, a law enforcement training company, is that I want to help cops become awesome. You know, I want to help cops have great careers, become experts, be able to save people's lives. And the stuff that I just saw out there in the market didn't do it for me. Didn't It just didn't live up to that kind of high standard. So I decided, listen, I'm going to start my own company and, and my marching orders to myself will be, we're only going to hire the best instructors. We're going to just look for absolute rock star instructors who are just incredible presenters as well as being subject matter experts, but they have to have both. Great teacher, subject matter expert. Then we're going to design courses that solve problems for cops, right? In other words, stuff you can use tonight on the street. We're going to uh, do it in a way that's fun, dynamic, and modern, and isn't like the old dry PowerPoint shows, death by PowerPoint, or any of that stuff. And with COVID, we had to kind of transition into doing some online stuff. And so we've tried to make our, how can we make that interesting, right? It starts with, let's just be real. Let's just be like down to earth, funny, normal humans like we are and not try to BS the students and just kind of meet the learner where they are. So every course that we've designed, you know, it's, it's all listed on our website. You can go to savagetraininggroup.com and, and check them all out. But I'll give you a couple examples of why that would matter to the people that are listening. When I first got promoted to sergeant, I thought for sure, you know, they're going to send us to sergeant school and that's where we're going to learn all these fabulous like ways of handling critical incidents because man, as a police sergeant, what could be more important than you are running a critical incident where people can literally get hurt, die, right? Nothing could be more important. So I got sent to the state's 80-hour supervisor course, and I don't think we we discussed responding to hot calls or critical incidents one time, right? We discussed like Generation X and Generation Y and how to complete evaluations and how to lead a briefing, but nothing about Mm -hmm. the stuff that you need in the field, field craft. Right. So I took every single piece of information, every great training, everything I could find in all my years of experience and created a class called Response Tactics for Critical Incidents and In-Progress Crimes. That is a very long title. We should have named it something else, but <laughs> it's a short class. It's eight it's hours. Awful, yeah. <laughs> it is uh, jam-packed. It probably should have been a few days long, but cops are so freaking type A that we jammed a ton of information into an eight-hour course. And it's everything you need to know as a officer, deputy, supervisor about how to run hot calls from how to coordinate and set up perimeters, how to catch fleeing suspects, how to outmaneuver fleeing suspects, how to deal with barricades, how to make decisions, which is really what where the rubber meets the road, how to conduct a pre-contact assessment, meaning what questions should we be asking before we ever got to the call, right? Questions like, what's the crime? What's the threat? What are the expected outcomes of me doing X, Y, and Z? We intermix it with laws and case studies and a ton of body cam videos. We give examples of stuff that went right, stuff that went wrong, and cops love it. And the the sort of the number one feedback we get on that course is, this should be a mandatory course for everyone. And yeah, I'd love it for it to be mandatory for everyone, but that we do a lot of classes in California where we're based, but we also do classes out of state. So I think that course solves an issue. And you, you're doing virtual training as well, right? Yeah, we're doing virtual training. We're doing webinars. We're, we've got some actual online classes now where you could be sitting in your patrol car and anywhere in the U.S. and kind of be, you know, watching the video. And 
we've made those kind of dynamic and interesting and super high quality. It's not just something we scrap together in like our basement or something like that. I think that solves an issue. I think our response to the non-criminal barricade course, which is in person and there is an online version, I think that solves the issue of how do we know when we're going to be liable or not if we walk away from a armed suicidal barricaded person, right? You could do all this research yourself. You could look up all these laws and, and, and research every policy and procedures out there, or you could just come to the course and we'll give it all to you. Because when you come to that course, you learn about tactics, you learn about um, liability laws. We show you when you're going to be liable, when you're not, but then we give you access to our collection of policies. We've collected, I think it's up to like 10 now policies about non-criminal barricades, when to walk away, when not, when to, when to make entry. We've collected those from agencies all over the U.S. And you could spend hours and hours and hours sort of recreating the wheel, or you could just kind of come to the course. You can sign up for the, the, the online version of that too. And then we've got an interview and interrogation course, which I think, I think when the public and the media is done criticizing us about the way we use force on people of color and the mentally ill, the next thing they're going to look at is false confessions, coercive sure. interview techniques, right? I'm sure you watch mm -hmm. the Netflix specials like I do that show how people have been exonerated by DNA after they've served 20 years or more in prison. And then they go, yeah. wait a minute, how did that get there? Oh, look at this cop and how he's interviewing. Some of those people, I think it's 25% according to the Innocence Project, 25% so of people that were later DNA exonerations confessed to the crime. Think about mm -hmm. that for a second. And once you start to understand the science about why people falsely confess, remember, this guy did not do it, but he took credit for it in the interview. Why did that happen? A lot of it, the science has shown us, is because of the techniques that we, we've all grown up being trained on how to conduct interrogation. So uh, we designed a new three-day class based. It, it is, if nothing else, in harmony with the latest research, right? Researchers have been trying to tell our profession for years, we've got to change the way we do interview and interrogation. Well, finally, we listened. Finally, we listened. And the, the remainders of our courses, we have one on crisis communication, which is outstanding, taught by uh, Paul Grayton Jr. He's a sergeant with NYPD, full-time digital communications officer. He teaches that, everything you need to know about talking to the media, social media. And then we have a huge field training officer program, which I think, I don't, I don't know how you feel, but I think field training officers are probably some of the most influential trainers we have. And maybe Absolutely. we should start investing in the most. Yep. I agree. So Scott, I mean, I agree with you. I think all of this training should absolutely be uh, required, should be mandatory for, for everyone. But I imagine that as you are, are out seeking opportunities to bring your training to different agencies, you're hitting some barriers to, to those or some common objections uh, or maybe even misconceptions. And so this, uh, the audience that listens to this show is largely, of course, law enforcement, but even more specifically, um, there's a lot of law enforcement leaders and trainers that listen to the show. And so I wonder if you could speak to that and, and talk about what are some of those common misconceptions about your training or barriers that you run into to bringing your training to different agencies and demystify that for us? What's the actual uh, response to it and, and how can we remove that barrier? 
Well, I think there's probably two different customers that we serve. Police agencies who are sending their people and then individual police officers who are like, no, I'm going to pay my own way and go to this class. So let me talk to both. The police agencies, when they're looking at sending people to training, are dealing with limited budgets, right? Limited budgets. So they're naturally going to go, okay, what do we have to do? What sorts of training must I send officers to? Let's invest in that first. And then we'll invest in any kind of discretionary training after that. And sort of the thing I say back to agencies is you can look at how much this training will cost you to to go to. Ask yourself this, how much is it going to cost you to not go to this training, right? You have a sergeant who's working in the middle of the night by himself, supervising a small team of officers and the big one hits or it's not the big one. It's the little one that turns into the big one. The decisions that that first line supervisor, that initial officer make can literally mean the difference between life and death, literally mean the difference whether your agency will be on CNN tomorrow or not. So investing, for instance, our, our response tactics for critical incidents and in-progress crimes course is $249 for eight hours. Geez, that, does that seem expensive? How much do you think you'll pay if one of your guys gets it wrong, right? Some of our courses, they're not inexpensive, Right. Uh, our field training officer course right now, I think is $615 for 40 hours. My question to you is if you don't want to invest in your, your field training officers, if you just kind of want them to squeak by with sort of the basic and let's go find a cheaper alternative, you will get what you pay for. I promise. Absolutely. You, that. you, you will get what you pay for. So I think that's uh, when agencies, if they're looking at cost, you need to make investments in your people. Make sure it is high quality training you're investing in, vet it out, talk to the provider. And if you're simply sending someone to cheap training, you'll probably get what you pay for. And if you're simply sending someone to the same old, same old, just ask yourself, is it working? Right. The number one thing we see police agencies struggle with is retention and recruitment of officers. Well, having a well-trained field training officer who can actually save a struggling recruit save the, the that recruit that you spent all the money on to, to hire and equip and now they're not doing so well in the FTO phase having a an expert teacher as an F, FTO someone who is properly trained and maybe they've they've gone through our training that's someone who can save your investments you end up sort of saving money and then to the individual police officer generally what we hear is this i applied to go to a training class but my department won't send me for X reason, maybe it's a budget concern or a time off concern or whatever. I would really encourage the individual officers, don't leave your career progression, your safety, your insulating yourself against liability, your expertise. Don't leave that up to anyone else. Do not let your department control what type of training you go to and when. Take control of your own training. Most young police officers go out and buy a brand new truck, 15 different guns, 13 different kinds of knives, six different flashlights and all this other crap. <laughs> hey, what's wrong with that, man? Yeah, I, got, right. I got a cache oh, of yeah. all those things. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, it, they all do that. But then they're like, but I'm not, I'm not paying for my own training. It's like, mm, you might want to yeah. rethink your priorities. 
training. There, there is a disconnect about that. You know, there's almost this expectation of, well, if I'm employed by this agency, then then they should be paying for my training. And I don't disagree with that by any means. However, when it comes to, like you said, the advancement of your own career, your own safety, your own protection, your own legal liability, sometimes you just got to pony up the bucks and, and get it done. Yeah, I, I learned that long ago. I never left it up to my agency to be the end all training because I looked at the training that's being provided and said, you know what, this is more compliance, certification, show up to the range, shoot at the paper target, qualify expert. Okay, you're good to go. That's not training. That's not gunfighting. That's not proper weapons handling. That's not tactical yeah, that's decision making. Checking that's a box. That, that is just a small portion of being competent with a firearm. So right there, that proves to you that most agencies just don't have the infrastructure, time, money, whatever to properly train officers. So if you're a you're a professional officer and you are concerned with operating like a, at peak performance, go seek out training. And whether you come to Savage Training Group or you go find something else, some other great company, go seek out that training. Read books, listen to podcasts, seek out training. Never stop learning and just don't leave it to anyone else to, to control your expertise, your level of proficiency. Absolutely. Could you share with us case studies where you've had somebody attend your training and then after the fact, they, they shared with you maybe an incident that, that occurred and had a positive outcome and they attributed that to the training that they received from you? Yeah, we've actually had a lot. And so what, um, we constantly are trying to get testimonials from people or, or feedback. And we get a lot because we kind of try to stay connected to the students. And once we get a, a really good testimonial, we will put it on our website, you know, and, and try to advertise that because we want people to see, you know, how our students perform. But if you go on our website and look at the uh, response to the non-criminal barricade course, there's a great quote from a, a sergeant out here in Monterey, California. And he says, two days after taking this course, I was the on-duty sergeant when a male cut his own neck and barricaded inside his apartment. His wife and two children were unable to escape. I immediately thought about your class and formed a react team who was able to rescue the wife and kids through a window. The whole time, I was continuously reviewing your class in my mind. Although I've dealt with these situations before, I was very confident in my leadership and decision-making because of the training. I was even complimented by the lieutenant who arrived. So thanks for a great class. When I got that feedback, I was like, that is so awesome, right? Because that guy's just like, you yeah, know, that's I, cool. I wasn't, I was trained and I've been to these calls before, but your training made it simple to apply in the field, right? So he's talking about forming a react team and we kind of show you how, how to do that, what the different roles are, responsibilities, how to lead that, how that, where to position them, all, all the specifics of stuff. Because cops don't want to come to some vague class where it's just like, Hey, just do your best, you know, and you'll figure it out when you get there. Screw that. We're like, dude, do this. Here's the reason why. Here's the the data to back it up. Here's a best practice. And now let's watch a video of it being done. So yeah. having that, that kind of feedback is just, uh, what more could you ask for as an instructor and a guy that owns a, a law enforcement training company? What, what more could be more important than this guy going like, Hey, not only did I get kudos from my Lieutenant and I felt secure as a, a sergeant out there, but we were able to actually, uh, you know, conduct a rescue and get this guy into uh, custody safely. 
And essentially, you created a muscle memory for them. I mean, I know we're not talking necessarily uh, about the application of muscle memory in the same way we often do about firearms training or, or defensive tactics, that sort of thing. But this sort of training, I mean, it is it is a muscle memory, right? Because you're going through these scenarios in your training and you're talking about them and you're walking through what the appropriate response is and how to form this react team and, and the, the, the sequence of events that have to unfold, you created a muscle memory so that in the middle of that, that incident where things were hitting the fan and your adrenaline is through the roof and you can't really think clearly in the cloud of, of adrenaline, what shown through for, for him in this scenario, what it sounds like is this muscle memory that you created where his brain just went, okay, yeah, I'm in like panic mode right now, but calm down. Let me dig into the file here. Oh yeah. Here's this file that tells us how we need to respond to this. And and then you just execute, which I think that's incredible. I mean, that's that right there is the reason for training. So Scott, I really appreciate what you're doing. I, I love that you are so passionate about this. You have certainly built and developed some training programs that are unmatched and are absolutely valuable. And I'm, I'm glad to shout about it at the Hilltops with our podcast here so that um, everybody can hear about it, have the opportunity to check out your training, look into that, whether that's for their agency or for themselves individually. And I really appreciate the time we've taken to chat about some real world things here today, as well as uh, some specific things about what you're doing. And uh, I think maybe uh, I'll turn it over to you here to take us out on the show here and take an opportunity here to let everybody know how they can connect with you, how they get uh, signed up for your training if they're interested and, you know, maybe how they can follow you on social media and other uh, platforms that you're engaged on. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, anyone that wants to learn more about this uh, sort of high level, um, high quality, modern training, not doing things the way we've always done it, but what we think is, is sort of the best training out there, go to savagetraininggroup.com. We spend a lot of time building out websites and pages and putting articles and videos and, and everything you want to know. Um, that's where we have our, our all of our training offering. If you see a course that's near you, sign up because we'd love to have you. If you don't see a course that's near you, get over to the contact section, click on host a course, and why not bring us to your agency? We'll give you free spots for hosting, and then we'll, we'll make everyone else pay to go to the training, and then uh, we can we can send our instructors out there, be it me or one of the other freaking rock star instructors we have. We have an Instagram page. So go to Savage Training Group on Instagram. We do little training blurbs there, kind of just quick takeaways, but we also give away stuff there. So every cop loves free stuff. You want a free hoodie, don't you? So go for to Instagram. And then if you just kind of yeah, want, I want to connect a free with hoodie. me. Yeah, you want a hoodie. We'll get you one, Adam. <laughs> if you want uh, just to connect with me and, and just share ideas or, or for something, you know, personally I can do, I s- spend most of the time on LinkedIn. Uh, because I find that it's a little bit more professional than maybe some other um, social media platforms. So I, I like to spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. And I'm, of course, happy, happy always to connect with other police officers. Or if you're a non-police officer and you want to just bounce something off of me, I'm, I'm happy to help with that. But um, ultimately, at the end of the day, this is all about serving cops in the field. They are um, sort of the people I respect, look up to. They have an incredibly hard job. And I just want to be a small part of helping them be successful and very, very good at it. 
And of course, I'll make things easy for everybody. And I will put all those links down in the show notes for this episode. So if you're interested in connecting with Scott, checking out his website or following him on social media, just check out the show notes of this episode and you will find all of those links there. Well, Scott, it's been awesome having you on the show. I really appreciate it. And hey, maybe uh, maybe we'll have to have you back again sometime and see how things shape up here over the next six months and where we end up. And of course, the environment uh, is going to change because it's dynamic. And you know, maybe we've got some new things to talk about down the road. So we'll look at uh, maybe having you back on the show. I'd love to. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody. Thanks for checking out this episode of Public Safety Innovators Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please head over to my website at publicsafetyinnovatorspodcast.com or simply psi.chat where you can check out episode notes and other episodes from the show. While you're there, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or really anywhere else that you prefer to listen to podcasts. I would greatly appreciate if you could help other people find the show by leaving a review wherever it is that you prefer to listen to the show. I'd love to hear from you if you have feedback about the show, a suggestion on a guest, or maybe you're a public safety innovator yourself and would like to be a guest on the show. Please head over to my contact page on the website and you can submit that information there or just email me at adam at psi.chat. All right, I'll catch you on the next episode.